Section 17 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Section 17. The Age of Women. Basil's successor was his brother, Constantine IX, who had been his nominal colleague throughout his reign, but whose single appearance in public life had been at Abydos in 989. He was a man of fine presence, strong and stately, despite his 63 years. But his character had been spoiled by the purposeless life from which his masterful brother had broken loose, and he had no taste except for pomp and pleasure. He created his household eunuchs ministers, and the natural consequence was much misgovernment. All arrears of taxes were rigidly exacted. During his short reign, Constantine raised and expended the revenue of five, the outgo being mainly on pleasure. Many nobles and officials were disgraced for trivial faults, though it is probable that the sentences of blinding, which were freely dealt with, were mostly nominal. The general discontent was great. There is no reason for believing that Constantine was intentionally cruel or tyrannical. He was merely indolent and ignorant, and his eunuch ministers were to blame for most of the acts which made him unpopular. In 1027, the Pechenegs, attempting to profit by the accession of a weak monarch, invaded Bulgaria but they were repelled by Constantine Diogenes, one of the most distinguished of the lieutenants of Basil II. A Saracen fleet entered the Aegean and began to plunder the Cyclades, but it was defeated by the provincial squadrons of Samos and Chios. In November 1028, Constantine fell ill. He had three daughters, but of these one was a professed nun. There remained Zoe, aged 48, a vain voluptuary, and Theodora, a year younger, a woman of very different stamp, severely chaste and devout. Both were unmarried, and the dying emperor proposed to wed Theodora to some great noble, and name her his successor. He finally fixed on Romanus Argyros in preference to Constantine Dalasenos, who was feared by the court eunuchs for his stern ideas of duty. He ordered Argyros to divorce his wife and quickened his decision by threats of blinding. The lady saved her husband by voluntary separation and entered a nunnery. The act deserves remembrance. Theodora, however, stubbornly refused to marry under such conditions, and Constantine, who was near his end, fearing to waste time, 
united Zoe to Argyros. On November 21st he died. For the next 30 years the empire was ruled by Zoe's husband. The empress resembled Elizabeth of England on one side of her character, but had little of her practical ability, and regarded the possession of the throne merely as affording opportunities for pleasure. Romanus III was an estimable gentleman of sixty, somewhat vain, but learned and not devoid of talent. He celebrated his accession by releasing all debtors from confinement, and remitted arrears of taxation, while he discharged the private obligations of the released prisoners. He ransomed unredeemed captives from the Pechenegs and pardoned the victims of his predecessors' injustice. Other measures were less well advised. Large gifts were made to the church, which was already far too wealthy, and the mutual responsibility of the rich for the taxes of the poor in the provinces was abolished. The step was not, perhaps, an unjust one. The law had been enforced with extreme severity by Basil II, but it marked the withdrawal of the head of the state from the position of protector of the poor. Romanus naturally sympathized with his order. The long struggle between emperor and nobility had practically ended in victory of the latter, Legislation for the benefit of the masses ceased. Feudal characteristics, which were already too apparent, became more and more pronounced. The reign of Romanus III and Zoe was disturbed by some conspiracies. Theodora was disliked by both, and they eventually succeeded in forcing her into a nunnery on the ground that she had been implicated in one of the plots against her sister. The distinguished general Constantine Diogenes was another victim. He killed himself to escape public execution. In 1030, Romanus took command of Syria against the emirs of Aleppo and Tripolis. He had no military experience and a trifling reverse near Aleppo led to a wild and panic-stricken retreat to Antioch, during which the flying army lost almost all its baggage. The emperor, cured of his desire for military glory, returned to Constantinople. His officers had better success. Antioch was defeated, the emir of Tripoli gained over. George Maniakis, governor of Teluk in northern Syria, won a brilliant little success over the enemy, retaking great part of the baggage lost by the emperor and was appointed general of Lower Media, about Samosata. In 1032 he captured Edessa, which now became a permanent possession of the empire. Aleppo again became tributary. The important fortress of Perkrin on the Persarmenian border was also gained. In 1031, 
an Afro-Sicilian fleet raided the Dalmatian coast, but was completely defeated. A second naval raid in 1032 was also defeated, and in 1033 the imperial fleet under Tecneas retaliated by a foray on the Egyptian coast. In Italy matters did not go so well. The restless Norman adventurers had learned the way to the south, and in 1030 they established themselves at Aversa. Internally, the condition of the empire was not satisfactory. Asia Minor suffered from an outbreak of plague. There were also severe shocks of earthquake, and a famine which followed on these calamities produced such distress that the starving peasantry were driven to enslave themselves and their children. The economic consequences were disastrous, and though outwardly the empire was as imposing as ever, its strength was beginning to fail. Romanus III died on April 11, 1034, and Zoe, almost before the breath had left his body, married her handsome chamberlain, Michael the Paphlagonian, and proclaimed him emperor. Michael was a young man, probably not more than thirty. He had commenced life as a money-changer, and had obtained his post of chamberlain by the interest of his brother John, a eunuch of the household of Romanus III. He was exceedingly handsome in person, but was epileptic. He was an able man, and otherwise seems to have been estimable, though he is accused of having carried on an intrigue with Zoe during the life of her husband. John he created Orphanotrophos, Minister of Charitable Institutions, and the latter became his Prime Minister for all purposes. Three other brothers, Constantine, George, and Nikitas, were promoted to high office, as was Stephen, a shipbuilder, the husband of the Emperor's sister, Maria. The military nobles muttered angrily at being ruled by this family of low-born upstarts, though time had been when birth had been utterly disregarded as a qualification for the throne of the Roman Empire. They called them caulkers, an allusion to the trade of Maria's husband. Greedy, the Paphlagonians certainly were. Like all parvenus, they were intent on filling their pockets, though it does not appear that they were guilty of deliberate extortion. The fiscal administration was severe, but the surtax on land from four to twenty nomismata looks like a deliberate return to the policy of Basil II, of endeavouring to force the rich to pay their due share of the public burdens. But oppression there undoubtedly was, and for the first time we hear of riots against the collectors of the revenue. The increasing misery among the peasantry struck the emperor's sister so much that she appealed for them to the orphanotrophos, 
but without effect. And to the end of the empire's political existence, their condition merely went from bad to worse, until the time when the great fabric was a mere shell without a kernel, its heart eaten away by misgovernment and exaction. It does not appear that Michael was personally to blame for the evils of his times. He was probably more or less misled and misinformed by his interested brothers. It may appear strange that, being like Basil I, sprung from the people, he had not a better perception of their miseries. But it must be remembered that Basil I was a peasant, while Michael IV was of the trading middle class, which, as a general rule, has little sympathy for the masses. Where Michael could exert himself, he showed energy and insight. He cleared the court of the eunuchs of Constantine the Ninth, and though his treatment of Constantine Dalasinos, whom he imprisoned on somewhat improbable charge, may have been unjustified, this cannot be said of his spoliation of Theophanes, the avaricious Archbishop of Thessalonica, when his diocese was suffering from famine, had 3,300 pounds of gold, about 150,000 pounds, in his coffers. In 1034, a Saracen pirate fleet raided the Cyclades and Lycia. Myra was plundered, but in 1035, a second raid was entirely defeated, the prisoners being executed. In 1038, the emperor's brother Constantine defeated an attempt to retake Edessa. In the same year, Michael appointed George Maniakis governor of Italy and ordered him to invade Sicily, where the Mohammedans were distracted by a quarrel between two brothers for the possession of the emirate. Michael made a mistake though a natural one, in appointing his brother-in-law Stephen, admiral of the fleet. The proud aristocratic general and the low-born admiral soon quarreled, but at first all went well. Messina was stormed, an African army defeated at Rameta, and the eastern half of the island subdued during 1039. In 1040, Another African army was completely defeated, but succeeded in escaping by sea. Maniakis blamed the admiral, whose fault it really seems to have been, stormed at and struck him. Not unnaturally, he was superseded and imprisoned. Under Stephen, the Muslims rapidly regained all the ground that they had lost, and by 1041, the empire held only the district about Messina, which was gallantly defeated by the general Catacalon. In 1040, Servia revolted under Stephen Bogislav. It would appear that the rebellion was largely due to the endeavor of John the Orphanotrophos to establish direct rule over the country. An army under George Provatas sent by Michael was defeated, 
and Servia gained and maintained its independence. The loss of Servia was a blow to the pride of the empire rather than a serious loss. As it was, it would not have been acquiesced in had Michael the Fourth lived, but its immediate consequences were very serious, for the Bulgarians and Slavs of the old kingdom of Okrida rose in revolt under Peter Delian. Again, the Orphanotrophos, who had endeavoured to substitute a money tax for the present payments in kind, was responsible. Delian gained possession of many towns, and murdered all the Greeks who fell into his hands. He was joined by several Bulgarian officers in the imperial service, including Alusian, brother of Vladislav, the last king of Okrida. There were dissensions among the various rebel leaders, but they captured Durazzo and invaded Greece which they overrun to the Gulf of Corinth, defeating the inhabitants of the wealthy manufacturing city of Thebes, who took arms to resist them. An attack on Thessalonica was, however, completely defeated. Allusion then intrigued against Delian, ousted and blinded him. But he had no confidence in his ability to resist the empire and surrendered to Michael, who pardoned him. Michael was now slowly dying of dropsy, while his fits of epilepsy were of rapid recurrence. But he rose above his maladies and made desperate efforts to suppress the revolt before the end, which he expected should come. He assembled a great army at Thessalonica and took command in person, though so weak that he had to be strapped to the saddle. Every evening he was taken from his horse, apparently at the point of death. But difficulty and danger disappeared before his dying energy. He pushed on, recapturing towns and recovering the lost districts. The rebel army was defeated and destroyed in detail. Delian was taken prisoner. In a few months, Macedonia, Epirus, and Greece had been entirely recovered, and the emperor, who had at least made a noble attempt to retrieve misfortunes for which he was hardly responsible, returned to Constantinople to die. December 10, 1041. Zoe decided not to marry again, but to crown as her colleague Michael son of Stephen the Cocker. He had not been trusted by Michael the Fourth, though he bore the title of Caesar, and Zoe showed little wisdom in her choice. She required him to banish his uncles, but so soon as he was crowned, he recalled them, placed all his confidence in Constantine to the neglect of John, who had hitherto been all-powerful and had the baseness and ingratitude to depose his benefactress and force her into a nunnery. At once the people rose in revolt. When the point at issue was plain, they were always ready to assert their rights. Down with the corker, was the cry. 
and the rioters marched upon the palace and stormed it after a furious struggle with the guards and the households of the emperor and his uncle zoe was restored but much to her disgust the people the supposedly servile and helpless byzantine populace insisted that her ill-used sister theodora should be co-empress she unwillingly consented she was not anxious to press hardly upon the ill-conditioned boy who had dethroned her but the people were not so placable michael and constantine were blinded and immured in monasteries it can hardly be said that the punishment was ill-deserved constantine's peculations from the treasury alone amounted to five thousand three hundred pounds of gold about two hundred forty thousand pounds zoe jealous of her sister and anxious to thrust her again into the background now made a third marriage at the age of sixty-two her choice was constantine monomachos an old admirer who had been exiled to mytilene by michael the fourth his exile had been consoled by the company of a charming widow of the family of scleros granddaughter of the famous bardas and he made the extraordinary condition that he should not on marrying zoe abandon the faithful companion of his adversity sclerena as the lady was usually called was installed as augusta in the palace and she was soon on excellent terms with zoe whom she knew how to manage while her beauty and natural amiability as well as her wit and grace made her a general favorite with the lax courtiers the people were of a different mind they saw the concubine's equivocal position and loose morals rather than her grace and beauty and at the feast of the forty martyrs in ten forty three constantine was attacked by the mob who yelled down with sclerena and had to be pacified by zoe and theodora though a debauchee constantine the tenth was by no means an unamiable one he was extremely good-natured his life had been one of vicissitude and he regarded the throne as a secure refuge from his troubles he was a liberal patron of art and literature and while he wasted much money on pleasure it is to be remembered to his credit that he also expended large sums in the construction and endowment of almshouses and hospitals he was a martyr to gout which does not however appear to have spoiled his kindly temper he may perhaps be compared with charles the second of england he probably lacked the unscrupulous ability and readiness of that monarch but was hardly so bad from the moral point of view it would be a grave mistake to regard him with contempt we shall soon have occasion to see the extreme precariousness of his position the man who held his own against plots and open revolt and died on the throne after the death of his wife who appeared to be his only stay cannot have been devoid of capacity 
One act of the short reign of Zoe with Theodora had been the release of George Maniakis and his appointment to the command in Italy, where the Normans and Italian malcontents were making great progress under Argyrus, son of their old leader Melus. Maniakis defeated them near Monopoly in Apulia. But when he heard that the paramour of the sister of his personal enemy, Romanus Scleros, had become emperor, he proceeded to make overtures to the Normans, called them to his standard, and landed at Durazzo in February 1043 to contest the crown with Constantine. He was slain in battle near Ostrovo, and his mercenaries took service with the emperor. Another dangerous enemy was Stephen Bogislav, king of Servia, who invaded Illyria and repulsed a counter-invasion of Servia carried out by the imperial troops in the west. In 1043, the capital was suddenly threatened by another Russian attack. The pretext was the death of a Russian noble in a street disturbance at Constantinople. Constantine offered all reasonable reparation, but in vain. The Russians were determined on war. Their kingdom was far more powerful under Yaroslav the lawgiver than it had been under Sviatoslav, and it is clear that considerable success was expected. The expedition proceeded by sea. The fleet was now probably stronger for battle, than the rude flotillas of Oleg and Igor. Constantine had made every preparation to receive the invaders, but on their arrival off the Bosphorus he again made an offer of peace. It was rejected, and the fleet sailed out to the attack. It soon became apparent that the Russian armament was far more formidable than those of old and the first action was indecisive. Many Russian vessels were sunk, but a section of the Byzantine fleet was cut off and destroyed. A second battle had better results. The Russian armada was completely defeated, with a loss of 15,000 men. Fresh disasters by storms befell it on its retreat, and only a remnant reached Kiev, in 1046, peace was concluded, and thenceforth friendly relations were never interrupted. Russia became fast Byzantinized. Politically, the country underwent a deep decline after the death of the great king Vladimir Monomak in 1125, and had neither will nor power to attack the empire. In 1047, Leo Tornikios, a relative of the emperor, raised a revolt. He was governor of Thrace, and Constantine wished to transfer him to Armenia, where there was danger from the Turks. Tornikios considered this equivalent to disgrace, and marched on the capital at the head of a motley gathering of troops, retainers, and armed peasants. There were hardly any troops in Constantinople. After picketing the impregnable land walls, Constantine had only 1,000 men in hand, and these he directed to make a sortie by the gate of Blackerne. They were driven in, 
and the emperor, who was watching from the gateway tower, was in great danger, the arrows of the assailants showering about him. Next day Tornicius made a rash attempt to storm the city, and was completely repulsed. Troops from Asia reached the capital, and the peril was over. Tornicius made an attack on Redestos, was repulsed, deserted by his followers, and taken. On Christmas Eve he was blinded. Constantine's whole life on the throne was disturbed by plots. The conspirators, with few exceptions, escaped with very mild punishment. The good-natured emperor's kindliness was seldom ruffled. In 1048, the Pechenegs made another raid on Bulgaria, which was disastrously repelled. King Tirak and great part of his army being taken prisoners. The captives were partly sent to Asia as soldiers, partly settled in Bulgaria. But the Asiatic conscripts escaped and returned to Europe, joined their countrymen and began to waste the Danubian districts. They were joined by the king, who had been somewhat imprudently released by Constantine and the troops in the vicinity were twice defeated. Energetic preparations were now made. General Nicephorus Briennios was placed in command, and Kegen, a Pechenegg refugee who had been first employed and then distrusted by the emperor, was again taken into favor and directed to open negotiations. He was treacherously murdered by his countrymen, but the Pechenegg forays were curbed by the maneuvers of Briennios, and one of their hordes destroyed at Cariopolis. In 1050, they defeated Catacalon, who was wounded and taken prisoner. But his captors had conceived a rude, chivalrous respect for him, and he was carefully tended and honorably released. The Pechenegs were afterwards defeated and forced across the Danube, and they then made peace for thirty years. In Italy, the withdrawal of Maniakis left everything at the mercy of Argyrus. Constantine was inclined to favor him, and created him vassal Duke of Apulia. The step was well advised. It was only by such means that the Italians could be kept in allegiance, but the problem was complicated by the presence of the Normans, who were not inclined to leave the country, and very ready to fight for their own hand. Meanwhile, in the East, the empire had attained its widest expansion by the cession of Ani in 1045, sorely against the will of King Gagik, a great deal has been said of the unwisdom of destroying this Christian barrier state, but it seems to the writer that Armenia was never more than what it had been in earlier Roman times. A ball tossed to and fro between two great powers. The states were full of internecine warfare and were rarely able to maintain a good resistance against their Muslim foes. Taron and Vasparukan had been ceded by their rulers in despair of being able to hold them. 
great part of the frontier had already passed into Roman hands. The final cession of Ani was merely a question of time. Gregory of Ararat also ceded his principality. Only Kars now remained independent. Gagik received extensive estates in Cappadocia. In 1048, the Seljuk Turks under Togrul Beg attacked the empire. This horde was originally part of a great Turkish empire of Central Asia, with which the pre-Heracliad emperors had corresponded. Commencing as mercenaries of Mahmud the Ghaznavid, they eventually overthrew the Buhawids and made themselves supreme in Persia. In 1048, a Seljuk force under Kutulmish, cousin of Togrul Beg, attacked the Byzantine tributary city of Derbekir. It was repulsed, and being refused permission by the government of Vasparukan to pass through his territory, attacked, defeated, and captured him. Togrul thereupon sent his nephew Ibrahim to invade the empire. A vanguard of 20,000 men under Hassan the Deaf was defeated on the Stragma by Katakalon, then governor of Ani, and Aron, the Shishmanid. On the advance of the main horde, there were dissensions between the generals. Katakalon, wishing to engage while Aron urged the necessity of awaiting the arrival of Liparit, prince of Abasia, who was coming up. Ibrahim thereupon slipped past his enemies and sacked the great commercial city of Arzen, Erzerum, thereby inflicting a mortal blow on the prosperity of Armenia. The destruction and loss of life was doubtless terrible, though we can hardly credit Kamek's statement that the place contained 300,000 inhabitants. The destruction of Arzen was the beginning of woes for Armenia, which have never ceased to this day. Liparit arrived with 26,000 warriors, and a series of battles was fought with Ibrahim about September 18, 1048. Liparit was taken prisoner and his troops forced back. But Katakalon and Aaron disposed of the hordes opposed to them, and the Seljuks retreated into Persia. Constantine ransomed Liparit, and Togrul, not to be outdone in generosity, gave the money to Liparit on his release. Next year, Togrul himself invaded the empire. He defeated the troops of the independent state of Kars and captured and murdered their general, Tatul. But he failed to take the imperial fortress of Manaskert and then retired. His raids were quite objectless. In 1052, there were Seleuc raids. And in 1053, Togrul again invaded Armenia in person. He ravaged several districts, but took no important town, and suffered the second repulse before Manaskert. The Empress Zoe died in 1050 at the age of 70. Her husband survived until 1054. He proposed to nominate as his successor Nicephorus Briennios, general of the Macedonian theme. 
but the aged Theodora, who had been kept in the background for twelve years, now came forward and was proclaimed supreme Augusta by acclamation of troops and people. The news of her triumph embittered the last day of Constantine and perhaps hastened his end. His reign, though internally the slow decay which has been noted went on unchecked, had now been externally inglorious. The losses of the preceding reign in Europe had been offset by gains in Armenia, and all attacks from without had been successfully beaten off. Theodora was a woman of considerable vigor and ability, but she was seventy-four years of age, and, though conscientious and well-intentioned, was somewhat narrow-minded and vindictive. She banished Nicephorus Briennios and confiscated his property, and also superseded Isaac Komnenos, who commanded in the east. Internally she made her father's mistake of entrusting ministerial portfolios to her household eunuchs, but on the other hand she gave close personal attention to public business, thus avoiding his worst fault. Her reign passed away quietly. The only external event was an attack by the Seleucs on Ani, which was beaten off. Internally, the empire was unusually prosperous. The people regarded with chivalrous reverence and respect this last austere and upright scion of the great Macedonian house, which had so long guided the ship of state with profit and glory. And so, in extreme age, Theodora reigned in peace for two years. She died on August 30, 1056, and with her the imperial line, which had ruled the empire for 190, or 236 years, came to an end. End of section 17. Recording by Mike Bodes.